0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the G 2 g podcast. Um, today, we want to discuss uh, how blockchain technology can be used to create new fundraising models and uh, how it can be used to bridge the so-called uh, biotech valley of death. We will also explore how these de- de- decentralized networks can be used to revolutionize biotech R&D and accelerate research. And this comes at, at an interesting time when uh, in-house innovation at large pharmaceutical companies is slowing down and is relying more on cost effective acquisitions of young companies who are pioneering new cutting edge uh, approaches um, rather than doing their own research. But just, because just to give you a few numbers and mostly, it is that out of like ten thousand uh, pharmaceutical candidates that you will have to, on the plate, maybe one hundred will look promising in uh, chemical laboratory tests, Then maybe ten, if you're lucky, will actually then go on the uh, go clinical trial testing, and maybe one will then uh, come to market. So you can already see that there is a lot of effort, a lot of costs involved, and. Getting a drug to market, and we're super excited to have Paul Kohlhaas today with us, who is co-founder and CEO of Molecule. And uh, we're super excited to hear about uh, how what Molecule's contribution could be to sort of um, uh, accelerate uh, research uh, in pharma.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Astrid. Thank you so much for the warm introduction, and Christian. Thank you so much for the invitation on the podcast. Uh, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to to be here today and um, and share what we're working on. You're welcome. <laughs>
0: So, Paul, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, what molecule is, what it does, and uh, what your vision is uh, going forward. Uh,
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, after, I think you did a great job in just in summarizing some of the uh, the big pain points. Really, I think that we find in in modern uh, pharmaceutical development today. Um, and so, my journey into this topic uh, started when I was quite still quite young. Um, so, I got very interested in in biohacking. Uh, during high school when I was like 17, 18 uh, and found it really fascinating because in the biohacking community at the time you had um, really a flurry of new substances um, being explored. Many of them were kind of in like a gray area. Uh, And together with that, you had the emergence of strong online communities around these new substances. Um, So telling like Reddit forums and other forums and well, what I saw back then was that people were very openly and freely experimenting with these new substances in open source way. And I found that really interesting. Um, and at the same time, uh, due to like a personal uh, family friend of ours was affected by the opiate crisis in the U.S., uh, I started looking at the, the other tail end of this, is like how do big how does big pharma bring new therapeutics to market? And what are the underlying incentive mechanisms there? Um, and back then, I kind of saw this massive divide between Okay, on the one side, um, there's increasingly open source drug development and the emergence of these communities. And on the other side, we have this extremely encrusted, um, very slow, very expensive pharmaceutical system that is often bringing therapeutics to market that don't necessarily really serve or help, um, patients, um, as was, for example, and as continues to be the case with the the opiate crisis in the U.S. Um, after that, uh. I then went into economics. So I got really interested in these macro effects um, and then was studying economics in Switzerland and during that time, first um, first got into Bitcoin. Uh, so I was also trading biotech stocks and then we had a small trading group within that trading group. Um, someone introduced this notion of, of Bitcoin um, and then became really, really interested in, in decentralized networks. And uh, then spent a lot of my career after that, I briefly worked in private equity, started my first company when I was twenty-three. Uh, helping um, helping corporates understand the emerging blockchain ecosystem at the time, uh, and then worked um, at ConsenSys, which is one of the largest blockchain development companies in the world. And as I was working at ConsenSys, did uh, quite a bit of work on data marketplaces. So how can we develop systems that enable enterprises to share data, uh, for example, with AI researchers? So really bringing marketplace thinking into that. Um, and I, was, I spent quite a lot of time looking into Ocean Protocol, which is a, a, an emerging data marketplace, uh, and had this aha moment where I realized, hey, a lot of these new incentive designs that were emerging could be reapplied to the pharmaceutical system. Um, so our core thinking with Molecule is, what if pharma and biotech development became more like a marketplace? Uh, and if we look at the history of marketplaces, pretty much every business model that we have today, or like almost every industry has been disrupted by by marketplace technology. Um, And I think pharma and biotech in that way is one of the last big pipeline business models. So in general, you can say there's two big business models that drive, let's say, our modern economy. One is a pipeline model where I take something from start to finish and then bring it to a customer. So let's say... I'm creating a taxi business, a pipeline model would be I'm going to buy all the cars, then I'm going to put out job ads to hire the drivers, and then I'm going to put out job ads for people to see that I have a taxi business to call me up, and then I send out the cabs. So that's a pipeline model. And Uber came in, and yeah, we all know what happened next. Um, and so pharma is really a, really one of the last big pipeline models where assets are identified in the early stages and then move from step to step to step, to step through different clinical stages until they can ultimately be marketed and commercialized. And, um, and, but every company does that by themselves. So everyone in the pharma industry or biotech is like digging for gold and not sharing information. Um, and yeah, our guiding thinking coming into this was, what if, if pharma acted more like a marketplace where drugs could be collaboratively developed? Um, and for us, kind of the key driver in enabling that collaboration Uh, is is intellectual property and rethinking how intellectual property acts as a driver for innovation. Because with every marketplace, you have to ask yourself, what is the medium of exchange? What am I exchanging here? And for us, the core, like the core medium of exchange, and that became IP. um, So patents. If you think about what a pharma company really has, they don't have much. They have mainly intangible assets. And they're valued for those intangible assets, which, which are, which are patents. Um, And yeah, maybe as a, as a brief, brief introduction.
0: (laughs) That's great. Um, So you sort of introduced also this uh, notion of fractionalizing IP ownerships and that you could actually do this uh, via holding tokens. So how would it work on the molecule platform?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so, Going, in, going into this like, into this marketplace thinking, we asked ourselves, what would happen if, if, um, if patents became shared assets? So today, if you think about a patent, a patent is really a monopoly. So one company owns a patent, and it means they have the monopoly to commercialize and, and price that asset for a given time period. Uh, and that's justified with, obviously, the high expenses in R&D. Um, to actually to actually take the risk to research that asset and bring it to market. And we simply said, what would happen if, if we fractionalized ownership of IP in the same way that we fractionalized ownership in companies? So, of course, I can hold a company 100% myself, if that's the way I want to run a company. But we've seen, I mean, through the emergence of stock markets, uh, that uh, having shared ownership of companies creates a, like a flurry of incentives. In the same way that if I have a startup, I, I, I benefit a lot from giving equity to other people who then help me collaborate, develop it together. Um, and so we thought if we move patents out of companies and then enable a shared ownership structure, um, that would enable people to collaboratively develop a drug together. Now, that could, for example, look in a way, let's say a biotech um, decides to use our platform and spins one of their assets onto our system They can then say, cool, now we're giving 10% of the asset to our key research partner. And we're going to give 2% for whoever can do toxicology reports. Um, We're going to give another 10% to investors that want to come and invest purely into that asset. Um, And that actually plays into a trend that has um, really accelerated in the biotech um, space over the past 10 to 20 years, uh, which is called asset-based financing. Uh, so already today, um, many biotech companies will spin out assets and then raise financing purely for that asset. Um, and what you're really doing through that is you're you're creating a much more granular RD system. Um, whereas, for example, if I'm investing in a biotech company, I'm not investing in I'm investing in 10, 20 assets that they might be developing, and maybe one or two of them are successful. And so our our thinking there also enables much more granularity in terms of how you pick and choose what you would ultimately invest in or, or contribute your time into. Um, And I think tokenization in that sense has really ushered in a a completely new technical feasibility around how we can fractionize assets and and share ownership. Um, And and that's why we also believe the time is really ripe for, uh, for for the solution that we're proposing Um, because Ultimately, the system that we want to develop, it could be you could have a researcher from the University of Peru upload a molecule to a system. We then fractionize ownership in that. And as a next step, you could have an investor from Singapore come in and say, I've been looking exactly for this molecule because we have a similar thesis here and here and here, and I want to finance this. Uh, and this is something that previously would be completely impossible. Um, imagine ha- wanting to list uh, one of these assets on a, on a stock exchange, on a national stock exchange um that's just something from a regulatory perspective is a like is a non-starter and and that's why we also really feel that tokenization really enables this new global um connectivity
0: and how will this price will then be determined of the token or the underlying assets How will the, should that work
1: yeah um i mean there's different ways to value assets in the biotech space i mean this isn't something new it's like if if company a like let's say If if a company acquires an asset out of a university, there's there's known pricing methods in the biotech space that you can apply to that. Um, However, I think this tokenization approach also solves a really dominant problem in the industry, which is it's extremely hard to price IP, especially in early stage drug development, um, when you know an asset could potentially become worth billions of dollars. But currently, the data for that is lacking. Um, Pricing IP is very hard. And IP itself as an asset has been very illiquid. Um, and uh, t- tokens in that sense, and really the free markets that tokens enable, enable for, in our opinion, much more be- better um, pricing functions for, um, for the underlying IP. Now, from a technical perspective, there's, there's really interesting pricing models that have emerged in the, in the crypto and blockchain ecosystem. Um, one of them are um, automated market makers. Um, so that's something where we've invested quite heavily in, in developing kind of algorithms that make it much easier to price these assets from the get-go. Um, and then the other thing that we're working hard on is, uh, is kind of standardizing early-stage IP kind of pricing mechanisms. Um, so I think once you... I think once you, once a biotech company reaches series A stage and it's, and the data is a little bit more clear, it becomes much more easy to price. But if you, the assets that we're really focusing on are preclinical assets um, that either reside in academia or very early stage biotech companies. And those are also the assets that like big pharma, which is ultimately still a buyer is most interested in. Um, And, yeah, creating using these new mechanisms to create more liquidity in that phase, we believe would be hugely beneficial uh, to to accelerating research in that in that stage. And maybe to come to the title uh, of of the podcast, that's really where the valley of death is most prominent. Um, uh, translating discoveries out of academia and translating discoveries in early stage biotechs into um, kind of into the clinic.
0: Cool. I think that uh, in previous uh, uh, talks, you always uh, spoke also about the possibility that if someone, for example, publishes positive data to an asset, that could potentially then raise the price. And if there is some negative data to it, then it will sort of de- decrease the price of an asset. Is this still in your model or have you changed that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um I, I mean, I think it's a model that is generally found in financial markets. If positive data emerges about a company, the price will go up. If negative data emerges about a company, the price is likely to go down. And that's just because traders are making uh, are making very quick financial decisions and placing their bets accordingly. And we found this a really interesting notion as we well as we began developing Molecule. And you have to kind of think our ultimate vision for Molecule is really to become like the thriving public stock market uh, or or exchange market for, for these super early stage assets. Um, And something that we found really interesting is that this creates entirely new incentives for positive and negative data, because negative data with the current way that IP and patents are monopolized, negative data is not valuable. Let's say I'm a biotech company. We raised $20 million in funding. Uh, We've been researching and researching and researching, and we increasingly discover that our lead asset that we promised our investors just isn't working. (laughs) Um and we don't really have an incentive to tell the world about that. Because why would we tell the, the world that our drug that we've been researching and raise money on isn't working? Um and this creates really perverse incentives because the next thing that we would try and do is probably still sell it off as something that might work and be great. And maybe we'll get a bigger pharma company to buy it. Um and then they buy it. And and a lot of these kind of deals are based kind of on what I was thinking is like. Business development and M&A tactics that came up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, like we make a big M&A deal, we all win. And then big pharma takes the acid into the clinic. And in stage two clinical trials, they might realize it doesn't work. But this was already information that we might have discovered at the end of preclinical trials. But no one had an incentive to bring that out. Okay, so let's turn this around. Let's think if this acid was publicly traded in a community-like setup. Um, so you have researchers working on there. There's still a company that's invested. Um, there's numerous investors. And let's say the asset is just gaining and gaining in price, um, similar to the, let's say, the mania that we've recently witnessed in, in the cryptocurrency markets. Uh, and let's say I'm a research team at MIT, and I'm like, mm, you know what, we've looked at similar compound, as a similar compound structure for this indication, and we think it's going to be toxic here, and here, and it's not, that's why it's not going to work. Um, but now this, this, this publicly traded asset is almost like a bounty. It's almost like a pool of money that's sitting there. Because if we can prove that most people in the market are wrong because the asset isn't, like this drug isn't going to work, then that's valuable financial information. Um, so you could have these like scientists that now are incentivized to produce negative data to show that an asset might actually not work and thus bring down the price again. Um, and you could have market participants kind of go long and go short Based on the data that is emerging around the asset. Um, and you could say, okay, is this financialization? Is this a good thing? Because it can also feel kind of like like it could be concerning. Um, personally, I would always say that it's a great thing if this negative data or positive data emerges as soon as possible, because if that keeps a big pharma company or anyone from buying the asset and then investing another 100, 200 million into getting it into stage two clinical trials. That saves massive costs for patients, because ultimately, if a drug fails in stage two clinical trials, all of those costs are being offset to patients somewhere else. It means that somewhere else the price is going up. Um, And so we hope through these kind of these new information incentive schemes uh, that, A, you can weed out bad candidates much more quickly and that you massively increase the diversity of of drug candidates. Um, yeah, So that was a long-winded long, long answer.
0: <laughs> no, I think it's really fascinating, but um, sort of uh, the issue I have here is, so who decides if uh, positive or negative data will actually be admitted as part yeah. of the valuation? And yeah. how do you then go about sort of insider trading that could go along with that? Is it sort of, can you create a sort of regulated market around it or what is the thinking there?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... It, it, that's a really interesting question. I think a part of it will, will depend on, let's say, the researchers that are officially affiliated with the project. Um, and we also need to be careful there with the incentive design around that, because if I'm a researcher that is has a financial stake in, in an asset that I'm researching, I might be biased to show positive data. Um uh, the implications for insider trading in, in these kind of setups are really interesting, I think, because in a way that we are intending to structure some of these like markets, you would essentially have like you could have an open license to research the compound. And that means I could be a completely unaffiliated and just start researching this thing and then publish about it. Um, and, and then is the question, am I now gaining an edge on the market if I'm researching something that is in the public domain and I'm creating data? Is that really insider information? Um, because the lines there get quite blurry. It's kind of like if I, if I if I think that the new Tesla model won't work, so I buy it. And then um, I guess I'm probably legally not allowed to open it. But let's say I was and I discovered there was some fatal flaw. And then I wrote a blog about it. Uh, and that would now drive down the price. Was that, is that insider trading? Um, yeah, so I think it gets it gets quite interesting, and like also we uh, we look a lot in what's happening in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space, and the similarities there. For example, if I'm a developer in a public protocol and I discover a, a, a bug in the protocol, um, and I know that it's going to fail, but at the same time it's tried to this massive to this big like to this big price tag. Um, and then there's also a question: there is that insider is that insider trading? Um, well, actually, I'm I'm curious, Astrid, what would you think about that?
0: Oh, a tough one. I'm trying to get my head around it as well. I mean, I think one way is probably to uh, sort of uh, make uh, data just admissible to really recognized institutions like universities that are in this space. However, we know that there are always competing groups as well. Um, So there might be an issue there. Um, Yeah, I think that that, that it is a very interesting topic that uh, sort of, one can even think one step further ahead that one could actually use this also or the molecule infrastructure also to think about science as a whole, not just about a biopharmaceutical research project, but also how could you actually use this infrastructure, for example, peer reviewing processes. Yeah? yeah. So I think there are some some really fascinating applications there, but uh, I think that's maybe something also along, I don't know, trial and error or being sort of part of the molecule network as well. I mean, also Think about maybe that goes a little bit too deep maybe for this podcast, but also think about sort of staking mechanisms and how really people can actually think about governance in that kind of way. Yeah. So I think there are definitely some, some, some options to explore there.
2: Inter- interesting ideas. Interesting ideas. I'm working now in the, in this field that you described since 2006. And um, there was just one thought popping up in my mind. Before we come to the business models and applications, um, when I think about China in think December, January, 2020, uh, December 2019, January 2020, when the Corona crisis started, uh, I think the fish market in Wuhan was very well frequented by people. So many people went there and wanted to buy something. When the crisis started, it was shut down. So nobody went to the market and the market vanished. Uh, I think it was reopened somewhere else. The question that popped up in my mind while you were speaking is: I understand that you are creating a market. Why should I go there? Yeah. What's the reason why? When I have a patent, why yeah. should I go to your market? Why? Wh- what benefits do I have? I mean, the, the the problem that I see in the industry currently is, um. I always find people to research. So just talking about the problems that I don't think that are problems in my mind. Um, I always find somebody who helps me research. So there are many scientists in the world, uh, who are happy to get paid. So when I have investors and I can pay people, they are very willing to, to provide their insights. Um, I think the scientific debate is ongoing. Um, I'm not so much worried that there is too little debate. I am more worried that uh, the scientists um, debate too much that they won't talk anymore with each other. So I think this is very well uh, solved. Uh, also, finding negative truths uh, happens very often. That the thing that really that really blocks the development of many drugs is really a lack of money in this uh, in this valley yeah. of death. That investors. Um, let's say the, the professional venture capitalists, uh, they see too much risk in this area. Uh, the public funds don't want to have a state owned, uh, IP landscape. And, uh, the business angels, the problem is it's just too many. So when I want to fund a project up to clinical phase one, let's say we need about five, 10, 15 million dollars. Uh, Getting that out of the European business angel community creates a cap table with hundreds of people, basically. Uh, where exactly is your infrastructure in that picture fitting in?
1: Yeah, uh, great question. So I'll, um, I'm, I'm going to phrase this like why come to our platform as a, let's say, as a researcher who has an interesting innovation. Um, because obviously there's very different incentives on the investor side or on whoever wants to contribute to these markets. Um, and then I, you said it 100% correct. I think the biggest bottleneck at the moment in this stage is funding. And uh, I also think access to networks and resources. Um, if you're a researcher today that isn't in, uh, in one of the big biohubs like Boston or San Francisco um, uh, it's or Oxford, it's very hard to get access to funding. It's super hard to even figure out how to get there. If you're not like a biotech executive, who's, who's done this, who's done this five or 10 times. And you often actually see that in like the executives that run biotech companies, that this is their like 10th or 15th rodeo. Um, but I think for young biotech founders, that landscape is incredibly hard. And, but it's a huge, it's a huge shame. And it's a massive, massive missed opportunity because there is so much innovation that we're just not enabling, um, that we're just not enabling the emergence around, um, And then the other thing is I I have interesting conversations sometimes with biotech VCs who are like, look, a ticket size under five million just doesn't make sense for us. The risk is too big. You won't get anywhere. And we have this complete opposite stance. We're like, look, if we make the processes more efficient, we can build and and this is really our model, build virtual virtual pharma companies or build these virtual biotech companies that operate. and, And this is an increasing trend in general that operate, let's say you have two researchers at the um, University of Basel, you have one researcher in, in the US, we're bringing them together through like a shared ownership vehicle, and then we can get give access to that vehicle to an investor in um, who isn't like tied anymore to a geographic investment location, uh, but you can kind of build a global cap table. Um, and the stage that we're specifically focusing on is, this, is where we see the biggest gap, which is in pre-seed funding, so supporting, and this is kind of where grant funding typically stops or grant funding gets really hard uh, and, and seed funding isn't available yet. Um, but it's also where there's the biggest amount of, of compounds and, and innovation really. Um, yeah, and so we t- at the moment we focus on, let's say, investment amounts in between 100,000 uh, up, up to a few million. Um, we, we're not really going into that seed stage yet uh, just because the type of, it It gets very different because then you're already dealing with an existing company, um, a, a much larger team and um... so if i if I got it right, um, when
2: we have a patent that's developed on the mm-hmm. on the university, um, yeah. the researcher can access your platform yeah. to sell the patent via your platform. Is that the right picture?
1: Okay. So in the first step, what we're doing is we're first, we're gathering the information. So as a first step, you can kind of come to our platform and you can almost create like a LinkedIn profile for your research project, which now means you have different data fields that an investor would typically want to see. So at the first thing that we're actually doing is we're forcing the researcher to adopt a different mindset and kind of put them into a framework. Like, look, these are the questions that you need to answer to even become interesting, because, um, because that's exactly what anyone wanting to buy this asset would be looking for. Uh, And then we start gauging interest in this asset. Um, And from there, the next step would be actually, would be looking at the IP, like what's the IP strategy around this asset? Is there a patent already? We actually like working with assets that don't have patents yet because it allows us to do the patent strategy from scratch. Uh, And there we work with, for example, we work with um, legal counsel um, and IP, IP attorneys in the US. And then we would actually, we would take the asset, develop a strategy around it and then move it into a special purpose vehicle, uh, which in for um, yeah could be just a Delaware LLC. So at this point, the researcher has like can get access to a, ta- a cap table, access to an IP strategy, and and then if we're saying hey, let's actually make this asset investable now, we would move it into one of these virtual virtual company setups. Um, and at that point, there's a question: Do we tokenize it and go more of a decentralized route, mm-hmm. uh, or do we go uh, like a securities route? Let's,
2: let's, let's go a little step backwards, uh, to to really, to really understand, to really understand what you're doing. Um, and if I'm too critical, Astrid, stop me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, what, 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 what what you're telling is basically how the industry is set up. So we take an idea at the university and, uh, it's a tech transfer process. So it's, uh, you support the, uh, the researcher in defining the patent strategy uh put the patent then license it from the university into a special purpose vehicle okay. and this is standard yeah. so this is this is happening um already yeah. in the industry anywhere in the world it doesn't matter if it's Shanghai, if it's Boston, if it's San Francisco, if it's in Vienna. This is the standard process. Where is now the blockchain technology?
1: <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Okay. So I mean, I, I think we need to unpack these things one step at a time. But where mm-hmm. the blockchain technology really, really becomes interesting is that we're moving these this asset now onto a global network, uh, and that's a massive game changer. Because so essentially, the let's say the status quo would now be um, the asset stays in a special purpose vehicle. That entity sells shares. Uh, maybe one day it does an IPO. Maybe it starts trading on an existing stock exchange. Um, you can only give access to the, to the vehicle to accredited investors, at least in the United States, which means you need to have a minimum income of 200K a year or over 1 million in assets. Boom. Like that's most of your research community and most of your patient groups. Uh, anyone more democratic is gone. Um, and so where blockchain technology really becomes interesting is you can you can restructure access to these assets, and you're moving them not onto let's say a, a Nasdaq, but you're moving them onto like a global a global platform. Um, and then it becomes quite important to look at is this a security? If it if it is a U.S. registered security, then you still need to confirm you need to confirm with certain regulations. But still, even having it as a token makes it much more liquid, much more easily transferable, uh, and many. Many regulations in the U.S., including, have, for example, started um, starting enabling smart contract-based share issuance systems. Um, and on the other side, if you have a non-security-based model, your options in, in how you now design this as a financial asset are like, almost unlimited. And um, what I mean with unlimited is you can create new, new governance structures um, where this token now takes a fundamental role in, for example, voting how should we price the asset. So you're with tokens, for example, you can move shareholders out of passive roles into very active roles mm-hmm. and very active roles in how the asset is actually developed. Um, Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today.
2: I think that the problems that I see in the industry is, on one hand, is access to capital. I completely agree to that. Yeah um the second problem that i see is um the cap table so mm-hmm. what um i saw in the past is uh, some companies who invited family friends and acquaintances to invest in the company directly directly in the spv which at the end of the day had hundreds of people which mm-hmm. makes it very challenging to Engage you, we see later in the process because the negotiation process really lasts long to coordinate hundred shareholders of a company in a limited shell. So this is, this, these are two real problems that, that I see. Uh, what I understand from your speech right now is that you want to solve the access to the capital, Mm -hmm. uh, on one hand, so that you create a global network. Uh, if you solve that, it's great because it's really a problem to, to, to get out of the way but what i would like to understand better is the second thing what you are doing with the money that flows to the company because basically it's what you're doing you collect money and yes. you are dedicated to the development of a molecule yes. uh, the question i have is how does that work that we have a better infrastructure when we use your system than this um, standard process that happens to the people directly invest in a company. What is your uh let's say what is your USB here?
1: Yeah. I mean I think first I want to preface this with saying we can't fix all of the world's problems. Um, uh, and I also think we as a company we need to experiment a lot. I think one say we experiment with new models and on the other side we need to reapply tried and tested methods. Um, I think it's it's a fallacy to think you can yeah you can reinvent the world, reinvent cap tables. Um but maybe to give a concrete example uh, from a, um, a really interesting project that we're working with, with the University of Copenhagen in uh, the longevity space. Um, so we, we, out-licensed a, um, we out-licensed an asset from them. And what we then do is we move that asset, as I mentioned, into, into one of these vehicles. And um, the research team that developed the asset is still working on it. So uh, we outlicense the asset into, into this vehicle and then funds are raised into the vehicle, and then the research can commence. And so the research team, in, in obviously, before says, hey, uh, these are the preclinical studies. Uh, these are the different steps that we're going to complete. Uh, these are the outcomes. And, um, and this is how much it's going to cost. And so once the capital starts flowing into the SPV, the SPV then begins paying the research team. And the research team now starts delivering the, the data um, and showing that the asset is valuable. Um you could also outsource the research to another research team. I mean I mean this is also where CRO, like CRO relationships become very interesting. And in these virtual pharma company setups where you have virtual pharma companies that already out like outsource 90, 95% of their development. Um and, and this this this
2: yeah. is this is no this is pretty much standard. So this is a, like every company that I know and I'm aware of is working, that most of the work is outsourced. What we keep in the companies is the project management. Yeah. Um can we can we get a step back uh, to how the money flows into the SPV? What what what, yeah. what is the what is the unique position there? Uh, because this the standard process still is I mean when we found companies, let's take a million for example. Um, we invest a million in a company, yeah. and uh, then the company the project management team starts working. It's pretty much standard, and the investors. Probably get, I would say about 70%, uh, 60, 50% depends on the negotiation skills of both sides. Uh, where do you make a difference here in the way that the money is flowing into the company? Because you said it's a tokenization of the process at this point. Uh, what's Mm -hmm. the difference in your process than the process that's already happening on the market?
1: I think the first difference in process is that there is no system today that, where you can scale this with. It's a similar thing where you could say, why are banking APIs a really interesting innovation? We had banking before, but these APIs are now extremely scalable to the point where I can just include an API on my website when I'm coding it and allow people to have a payment system. Of course, payment systems exist before. And so our hope is developing these frameworks and working with scientists that the process for them to set up companies and get them funded gets much more scalable and fast. So that, I think that's one innovation just considering the, the processes around actually doing this. Um, and you don't even need to bring blockchain or tokenization in there. So we also have setups where we say, hey, this is money going into a bank account and it's a normally set up company and then shares are issued in that vehicle. Um, if you bring tokenization in, it gets it. gets the money flows get a lot more interesting. So then you're actually saying, so now you're kind of, you have this, um, you launch a project in this decentralized network and you tie... For example, we tied the IP ownership to now ownership of tokens on this network. And now investors that are also on the network can contribute capital within seconds. So you could launch a a, a fundraising event. And uh, if there is enough demand within a second, the thing would be sold out and you have the money. And within like five minutes, if you wanted to, you could send it to the researcher. Um, and so the speed, uh, I think, the speed of capital flows, and also the liquidity that we're seeing emerging in blockchain and tokenized networks is is enormous. Um, I mean, for most networks, and even like so, there's a big decentralized exchange ecosystem that's growing. And we also hope that our the tokens that we're creating from these projects can be plugged into these decentralized exchanges. So, I mean, and these protocols have seen have seen and- like.
2: I'm I'm, uh, 46, I'm an old man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I should also maybe add just, you know, one point here, also from the blockchain space and, for example, why our fund uh, is predominantly investing into tokenized assets. And this is also one of the reasons that it's it's easier to manage and you can get out of it much easier than with equity, for example, because... With equity, as you appreciate, um, uh, there are certain also rules and regulations that go with it, certain processes. If you want to get out, if you want to sell your shares, sometimes it can take years and years and years and years until you can actually get out of it again. With tokenized assets, transferring this ownership actually gets much easier. I mean, if we're speaking about this kind of non-fungible tokens, which we would be uh, applying to Molecule, then obviously it it gets a little bit more difficult, but still much easier than equity. So I think in that sense, you know, there is a a great innovation in achieving that, that, for example, if an investor says, well, okay, I really have just an investment horizon of two to three years and I would like to see a profit, then with tokens, theoretically, this would be achievable. With uh, shareholding, it would be really difficult. And also, this is something that we see in our own portfolio that actually – the high profits are in the tokenized assets and the, also the the route getting out of all these assets now and closing down the first fund is actually much more difficult with all our equity holdings versus <laughs> our token holdings, just as a defense.
2: I, com- I completely agree to what you say, Astrid and, and Paul. I, I slowly understand uh, where you're aiming at, which probably is related to my age. Uh, so... Uh, yeah. Yeah, with 46, I can proudly say I'm an old man. Um, but let let's stop a little bit here uh, and dig a little bit deeper into that part because I think this is this is probably the most critical part of your project. Um, mm-hmm. Investing in a drug development company today means you never get out. So when a business angel invests money mm-hmm. in a drug development company, meaning developing therapeutics. It's a process that lasts still 10 to 15 years, even if it's COVID. So also on the therapeutic side, uh, there are limitations. Uh, we need to do a lot of study and studies until a product gets to the market. The early stage investors uh, basically cannot sell their shares because there are no buyers on the market who wants to purchase shares. The uh, behavior of the VCs is that the VC invests in a special phase of the development, like clinical phase one or clinical phase two, to move the project forward, but not to pay out the business angels. So I think this is uh, this is the, the the key problem here. What I understand from your explanation is that you make this phase where business angels wants to invest uh, much more transferable, so that it might create a novel market that doesn't exist yet. Did I get this right?
1: Stay with us.
0: We'll be right back.
1: Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders Drive Greater Teamwork, Collaboration, Cooperation, Greater Attitudes, Better Motivation, Coaching Career Development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. Yeah. So um, so something that you said, so for example, we're talking a lot about VCs and business angels, but like what if researchers could invest and like what if patients could invest? Like what if you had a new diabetic treatment that was funded by patients? And I think... Uh, I, I that's for us, that's a complete mind shift. And I think it's for our, our team as well. It's one of the biggest motivators. I think there is the potential here to create an entirely new market. Um, and, I think, and, and I think it really hits the nerve of time because you see, like, over the past year, I think we've seen an explosion of, of investment communities with retail people that are investing through apps like Robinhood. Um, there's a huge rise in, in really getting access um, and bringing that access much earlier downstream, which, which has actually been entirely reserved to people like inside, uh, industry insiders and biotech VCs that really are the only ones to really invest at that stage at the moment. Um, and I think democratizing that access is, is a really, really interesting thing in itself. Um, and then I wanted to add something to what Astrid said, just in terms of what I, think, what I think tokens are really interesting are their composability. So with shares, I can't really do that much. But say if I have if I have tokenized assets, let's say I take a basket of, of um, five longevity drugs, and I can now put them into a fund, and this is almost like a mini ETF. And using blockchain, I can do that within a day or two and launch it. And uh, and and in in the current financial like world, that would be insane. But on blockchain, it works. Um, there there's obviously numerous regulatory considerations that one needs to make when when combining these assets in that way. Um, but from a technical perspective, it's, it's very simple to do. And so that's another cool thing for us. So let's say, for example, we, we gather 5, 10 super early stage longevity projects from universities. And then we say, cool, we're going to bundle them into this mini ETF. And then if you, if you don't know the science that well, you can just say, cool, well, I want to invest some money into super early stage longevity. Let me put 5,000 euros into this, into this basket. Um, and so these are some of the like, next layer innovations that we can start building in. Um, but that just yeah creates so much like so much more possibilities than than what is it really yeah possible today.
0: How does actually the onboarding process look like for a project? So let's say I'm a researcher now and I'd be really interested to put something so sort of on the molecule data marketplace. So how would that actually work? So what kind of information do I need to provide, and how do you screen these opportunities?
1: Yeah, um, in the early stages, it's quite similar to a grant application. Um, where you kind of have to, you, well, you detail what your research outputs are, you, you would detail what it, what the current stage is, how much funding you might re- require, uh, and then ideally what the commercial opportunity is. We have to turn down quite a lot of researchers when we just realize, hey, this is still in the basic research phase, and it's quite unclear what the IP strategy around this is. Uh, and that's really, I think, a core... I, I think a core decision-making factor for us, looking at is there valuable IP here, or can we turn this into something into valuable IP? Uh, and then we work with advisors in different therapeutic areas. Uh, we've kind of we've tried to kind of narrow down in specific therapeutic areas and build network effects there, as opposed to trying to trying to go into like yeah, uh, go into many different areas. Um, and then we begin, even before we take a project live, we begin kind of testing investor interest around this. Um, uh, but in one way, it's quite easy actually to get your project listed initially if you can kind of complete this initial data. But it's much more hard, or like our funnel is still quite tight when it actually comes to financing them. Because the finance, doing these financings event is much more yeah, intensive than obviously than just collecting research projects um, uh, at birth.
2: So basically, you are not only uh, putting any project on your platform, so you are doing uh, a proper due diligence process initially. You support the scientists in defining the pattern strategy, uh, also test the market with investors and advisors and see if it really does make sense to to sell this asset on your platform. Is that uh, the right understanding?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the right understanding. Um, that's a cool it's thing. It's something that we...
2: Mm-hmm. That's a great thing. That's a great thing, actually, because uh, it solves one problem. So especially when, uh, let's say investors want to invest via your platform that are not proficient in the field. So they get a yeah. uh, risk assessed asset and it's, it's not just, uh, someone doing and what was the term ICO? Someone is issuing an ICO, yeah. but there is a professional team behind it who looks at it. Uh, if this project really can end up in a, in a product at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. And we, we have to do that initially because I think we need to, well, we should ensure that the project that launched through our system initially are, can really be successful. Uh, I think over time, the merit in the system will really be by making it completely open. Um, because if we get more and more into a role of due diligence in the assets, we're, our, it changes our business model because then we're acting more like a biotech VC ourselves. And our team, the strength of our team is in, in creating like networks or platforms, not necessarily in being the best to pick biotech uh, investments. Otherwise, we should maybe make a biotech VC <laughs> if we're really good at that. Um, and the other thing that I find really interesting is um, I think if you make the system open, it, the system starts self-selecting. And I think it's very difficult to judge very early stage biotech innovation or, or, or drug candidates. Um, because it's really like a, it could be this, it could be this, um, but I think by allowing a, a big diversity, we can get much more, much better end results. Um, and our hope is over time that we get something similar that we've seen in open source communities, that you really have the development of a self-selecting community that starts helping researchers bring assets through the system, and also self-selects and regulates what is good and what is.
2: Let's put it in a practical example. So if I get an asset that I want to put in a company and uh, I need investors so I can go to your platform and then we sit together with your team and the team decides, does it make sense at this point in time or doesn't it make sense? Uh, yeah. Let's assume we come to the conclusion it does make sense. And yeah. we are lucky we find investors, let's say 3 million. Is it possible to raise 3 million at your platform? Uh, And we find that uh, then what they get is basically tokens. So it's like Bitcoin or is it uh, something uh, that I understood wrong? So you get uh, a transferable uh, thing like cryptocurrency. Is that the right understanding?
1: (laughs) Uh, Kind of in a way, yeah. I mean, I think tokens are misunderstood to some degree because many of them, so I think, I mean, there's three main categories of tokens. One Mm -hmm. is a payment token. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is a payment token. Uh, Like the euro is also a payment token. Uh, Then the second one are asset tokens. So these are tokens that are typically tied to a real-world asset and normally a security, um, which is then a share. So now you're just saying it's just digital share certificates. Um, And then the third, and the third is really the most interesting area are utility tokens. And um, based on what type of project and what type of setup we're going for, you would either receive a security token or a utility token. Um, personally, I think so. There's, For example, there's a concept which has really um, garnered a lot of, let's say, um, attention and acceleration over the past two, three years is a concept called DAOs. So these are Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. And one setup that is really interesting for us is actually to place the ownership of the IP itself into the custodianship of a DAO. And instead of making it a pure security token, make it a utility token. And now you create a community around this asset that collectively needs to develop it and drive it forward. Um, which is, But that's a complete paradigm shift to the current investment landscape. And also something that like, uh, I think that'll take time uh, until... Yeah, the world's ready for it
2: um, so in uh, so instead of owning a share of a company I own um, a digital asset um, yeah, yeah yeah okay um, which which I mean uh, I think the SPV will probably something be like a limited company or uh, which which shows actually I think a real problem because uh, it's it's always tricky as an early stage investors uh, investor to sell. Then, uh, whatever assets the investor gets in the current situation. So what they understand from, from your speech is that with your solution, uh, it solves the transferability of the ownership of a part of the company. So, um, when a business angel, for example, or a patient, uh, decides to get out of the investment, it's an additional chance. So, this this person can sell to a professional investor, to a VC, and can approach them, or can mm. uh, go back to your platform and try to find uh, other business angels, or other patients, or other researchers who who wants to buy the token. So in case there is liquidity on your market, but it's uh,
1: yeah, yeah I, f- I think slowly, slowly
2: understand what. Uh...
1: So on the one side, let's say if it's if it's a, if it's a security, so securities mm. often have quite restrictive transfer regulations, so you mm. can't just like give it to anyone, um, but let's say there's, let's say you do find someone who buys them and let's say that's really regulated, then you could just sell to someone else and, and, and transfer transfer token. Um, uh, what's really interesting is if you, once you start seeing secondary markets around these things, uh, and that's again, where I think this decentralized exchange system that's coming up on networks like Ethereum is super interesting. The secondary market means essentially now every day your your token is being traded by other people. So whenever you want to sell it, first of all, you always have a market price in the same way that there's a market price for any company listed on the stock exchange. And uh, there's always liquidity. So when you want to exit, you can exit at the current market price without ever thinking, okay, who's going to buy this or what am I doing with it? It's the same way. If you sell your shares in a public company, you don't consider who's going to buy them. Um, how,
2: how would it fit in into standard process? So when I, when I think a little bit further. Uh, we got a patent. We put it in an SPV. We got it financed via your platform. Yeah. And it really works. And we find out that this molecule has the potential to become a platform technology, yeah. which means you can do something uh, in various indications. So you can okay. uh, treat, let's say it's the wonder thing that treats everything, but it needs more money. <laughs> uh, wow. You get rich, you get beautiful, and you get healthy. So all three important parts in life. <laughs> uh But the thing is, we need 500 million Euros for that. And let's assume we cannot raise it via your platform anymore because yeah. it's beyond this early stage. Uh, 100%. what, what is the handover point? How does it work then to get the traditional VC landscape into such a company? What are your thoughts behind that?
1: So we've been thinking about this quite a lot and really from the earliest days and this then goes into like what is the we've talked a lot about the supply side so marketplaces always have two sides there's the supply side and the demand side so we talked a lot about the supply side this is really going into the demand side and then the early demand side is obviously really investors speculators that think "Mm, this thing might work and uh, if it works then it's going to appreciate value but then the question is how would any of this actually come to market um and we believe that if we can, if we can um, accelerate candidates like you just described, um, there is going to be huge inherent market interest, obviously, in acquiring them. Uh, I think the biggest, the most competitive part of the biopharma game is, is m and is like finding these assets as early as possible and acquiring them and getting them into your own pipeline. And so Molecule, in that sense, really becomes a massive pipeline play. Because if I can watch these compounds go up and down, and here's the new data emerging, and this is interesting, and let me check out this one. Um, I can watch this as a big pharma player. Um, And if I find an asset interesting, let's say the asset that you described is currently has a market value now of, let's say, 50 million. And we know it needs to raise much more to go further. And let's say now a big pharma company X comes in, or even a larger biotech company. Um, uh, I mean, even for like a mid-sized biotech company, those are relatively small amounts. They can now come in, and they would buy the SPV. So that means they say, cool. Here's a here's a takeover offer. We're gonna buy this asset for it's currently trading at fifty million. We'll buy it for sixty. The whole thing, and then the current, like say, shareholders or token holders would need to accept that, uh, and then they can cash up. Um, so then the the buyout would go to the SPV. SPV would redistribute money to shareholders, would dissolve itself, and give the and the ownership of the patents for the IP would flow to the buyer. Um, and I also think that's a very clean model because buyers can come in and make these offers and take assets off the system and then continue developing it. Um, Over time, we hope to develop enough liquidity that maybe uh, our system could start bringing assets to market uh, in an entirely new way. But um, I think that's, yeah, that's very far, very far into the future still.
2: I have one question from the audience. Um, It's uh, Kira Borchardt. Hi, Kira. Hi Kira.
1: Okay. So I did not quite understand where comes the liquidity from. So um I do understand if there's an exit. Okay, but if there is no exit yet, so how does the startup get liquidity here? Yeah. Uh, Great question. So and it's one of the I think the most you always have to say say this as a startup, one of the most challenging things that we're going to have to overcome um, is building initial liquidity. And the liquidity really comes from the network uh, that we're that we're yeah, that we're building around this. So let's say if you have let's say if we manage to onboard 100 business angels that are interested in um, investing into new therapeutics for mental health. And each of those business angels has, let's say, 100k in liquidity, then the collective would be the potential liquidity for a startup to raise through, through our system. Um, you can extrapolate that a little bit further once there's active markets that are being traded, um, that those active markets essentially represent the liquidity that, is, that could potentially be available for someone to raise successfully. Um, and let's say out of those 100 business angels, five decide to invest into that startup, that's That's essentially where the liquidity comes from. Um, uh, You can think in a similar way of like if I list my company on the stock exchange, where does the liquidity come from? It would be the market participants collectively that would provide a partial, partially provide that liquidity.
0: I have another question actually surrounding also IP matters because unfortunately this is sort of my background. So basically on the one hand, when you speak about IP strategies so or sort of like, oh, we'll have a look at the IP strategy and put one around, what, what do you mean by, by saying that?
1: Um, also a good question
0: with the IP strategy.
1: We try to, well, we try to follow the playbook that biotech has today, because ultimately the assets will only be successful if they have a sound IP strategy. Uh, and the IP strategy should essentially ensure that if the asset ever makes it to market, it can be commercialized as efficiently as possible for that specific indication. Um, and that could result in, yeah, in defining what kind of patents to pursue around this, defining when to file them, which is always a big question. It's often better to file like later rather than filing too soon. Um, yeah, those could all be elements of the of the strategy. And for example, ensuring sometimes with assets or sometimes there is no IP strategy, and it's important for a researcher to understand that. Sorry, this is like this is not going to be possible, or um, you're going to have to find other ways to finance this, which is often like a shame. If, um, for example, in the repurposing space, there's amazing drugs that could be repurposed, but and we've had lots of conversations, but there's simply no IP strategy that we can build. And then, it may, and then it's very hard to get investment for that. Um, uh, there are certain trademarking strategies that you can look into, for example. Um, there's quite interesting new things that have emerged around exemptions in the United States uh, in the repurposing space. But yeah, so those would all be things that we, um, that we would consider.
0: Okay, and the other thing is also so when you speak about research, I assume you often refer to academic researchers. And in my or my experience, I've worked with many, many academic researchers in the past, is that they sort of like to circumvent the tech transfer offices. And sort of, um, and when I think then about okay, you're having then this asset, you want to um, d- develop it further, and suddenly, and let's say okay, you have tokenized it now, and five years down the line, it looks super successful, and suddenly the university comes like, "Hey, but this was actually our IP ownership." So how do you go about resolving that, or uh, what, what kind of safeguards do you have in place that you will not get into this situation later on?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that needs to be super clear. Um, uh, yeah, just having very clear out licensing agreements with universities. Um, and that's also like, that's also a massive pain point that we've kind of identified as we went deeper into the space that every, for example, many universities have their own, uh, licensing agreements that they set up in the 80s or nineties. And it's, it's the same template that's been handed from person to person to person. And, um, and, and that's extremely frustrating to buyers because often it can take, it, I mean, for some of the out-licensing that we did, it took us over 12 months and, and to work with the tech transfer office to get it out-licensed probably. And um, so something that we've also looked into is, like, how do we standardize those agreements and just be able to say, look, you come onto our system, it's worked for these other people, these are the terms, and this is how it's going to work. And, um, and often for, especially if there is no patent yet, um, that can be quite nice for universities because they're like, okay, you're working for, we're essentially working for them. We want to help them do something with their IP. We don't want to take it. We're not like a pharma company that comes in and says, we're going to buy your asset. We want it as cheaply as possible. We want to help the researcher actually get funded. And and and, and that also works into a metric that the university typically has, which is like the number of startups that we create. Um, so actually like, yeah, um, working with tech transfer offices has been has been challenging, but also, yeah uh there's massive improvement there even even at that level to make um
2: there are always different expectations from different tech transfer offices and uh I like the point that you made that it's uh sometimes seems to be handed down the terms from father to son from mother to daughter for generations uh with with no changes i think if you solve that it's it's uh it's really one of the key points in the industry to standardize these processes, uh, which I didn't want to touch into because it's really time and cost consuming. So while you're talking, I'm wondering, uh, what's the business model of molecule? I mean, uh, either you are a super rich, uh, Bitcoin billionaire who is, uh, uh has a philanthropic spark who wants to do that, uh, or you're on the other side, um, and uh, have a business model established that you can use to fund your team to fund the development of the infrastructure. How does it look like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, maybe my, my my personal incentive to this goes really, really far back into like wanting to create a, a fair and much more accessible and transparent pharmaceutical development system. Um, I think I think we could be so much. We could be so much further ahead and be doing so much better if we if we give people the right tools. And something that we really want to do with Molecule is give researchers and patients and and the people that want to support them the right tools to make that happen. Um, and it's really, I think, something that the industry hasn't worked on at all. I think that to some extent, if you look at how deals are made, they're extremely selfish, um, rather than thinking of um, rather than thinking of the end user, which which is always the patient. Um, and so, from a business model perspective, uh, as a first step, we try to approach this as a platform, as a service model. Um, so, essentially, if you join as a university, initially it's free. Um, so, you create a profile, you can say, cool, I want to list my project here. And then, if we like the project, we start working with you. And then we try to operate on a success basis. Uh, so, if we get your project successfully financed, um, uh, or if it kind of successfully goes into a next stage, uh, then we take a fee on that success. Um, so again, comparing it to other marketplace models, we're not that different than a marketplace like like Uber or, or Amazon, um, where like Amazon will take a small fee of, of every transaction. Um, uh, the other thing that we were super interested in is taking small equity stakes in the assets and royalty stakes. And that's a really interesting business model, I think, um, but it's something that only scales over the long term. And so... But that's something that really fascinates me. If we had 1,000 or 10,000 assets on our system and, um, and we have a small stake in each of the assets and it's a negligible stake, it's like a super small minority stake, um, depending on our our involvement, let's say if we, set it, if we set up the entity, if we set up the IP strategy, maybe you had some elements already, and then we're trying to move that into a model where you can just subscribe. You can be like, cool, I want this service and this service and this service, and it's going to cost me this, this much of my chunk in the end. Um, But I think that's really exciting for Molecule actually to be exposed to all of the assets that are coming onto its system um, and be exposed to their success. Because I think another thing that's often lacking is alignment in business models. Uh, Because if our business model is aligned with the success of our compounds, then we're aligned to make them work and make them successful. We're not aligned to just get out at the first kind of, yeah, where the first kind of money comes through the door. Um, so yeah, being, so first it's it's a success fee in a similar way as other marketplaces, then being exposed to the assets. And the last thing that I think is really interesting is, um, having like premium data access models. Uh, so something that we haven't talked about is where would the data about these assets actually live? And the first step for us is to make the data ownership transferable and for the, the assets to, no, the asset ownership transferable and for the assets to live on our system. The next step would actually be to add, uh, data around these assets through our systems as well. So I can almost like start accessing a data room about a specific molecule asset that I'm interested in. Now, this data room is secure, and it's, it's only for within the stakeholders, and it has to be access to that has to be very restricted. But if I'm a big pharma company, it might be super interesting for me to have access to this data. And for the owners, it might be interesting for a big pharma company to actually look at that data, because they might be interested to ultimately sell it. Um, and so as a next step, you could start developing these data access models where, let's say, I pay a bulk fee to get access to all of, all of this data from, um, uh, from a fixed set of compounds. Um, that's, kind of, that's kind of a longer term business model that we're thinking about as well, especially, I think, as, as what we're doing becomes more interesting to, to enterprises.
0: So you mentioned just briefly that you actually would be interested in taking equity of these uh, of the companies of these underlying assets. So why would you not take some of the tokens then?
1: Oh yeah, I, I mean same yeah, same, same.
0: <laughs> I mean I think it, <laughs> I was wondering if so they were like, okay, we're talking about tokens here and then suddenly oh, it doesn't come up, but it's okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean with, with equity, I know more equity is is a form of ownership. Uh, sorry, I meant I meant that indirectly. Um, yeah, the model would, I mean, for us as a protocol, also the model will be much cleaner if, if, uh, if our equity is all tokenized. Um, and that's then also for us, the longer term thinking is giving, like exposing the owners of Molecule to the underlying, the underlying tokens that the protocol begins to own. So for, for, for
2: those that are not so familiar with blockchain technology, it basically means that researchers can go to you, to your marketplace Uh, ask you for support uh, to assess their asset and to find funding for it. And this whole process initially for the researchers is for free. But Mm. if you successfully fund the project, you take a success fee and a little bit of the equity or slash token. Um, So basically it's it's no risk for the researcher. Um, What happens? What happens? If um, you are not successful in fundraising, is there a special time period, or is there, a, a, let's say, a year that you can try to raise money and then you have to give everything back, or uh, does the asset then sit forever at your platform? What is uh, it? Might happen in future that uh, some projects just not fundable. Um, how does the researcher get out of the platform then?
1: Yeah. Um... That's a, yeah, that's a great question. And it's a little bit of like a chicken and egg question. Uh, you, so at the moment, we're only actually like jumping through the hoops once we're sufficiently confident that we're going to be able to raise for the asset. And I mean, I think this is a similar thing in like the startup space a little bit. It's like when you're, I guess when you're, when you want to start your own company and you don't have funding yet, you wait, you you often wait until you actually press all of the founding documents buttons and, and, and put, in that, like put in that first capital until you have at least like one or two angels that are joining. Um, yeah, but our current process is we would only tokenize your asset and kind of go through that steps once uh, once first commitments are relatively clear. Um, so that we don't end up in a state where we've, we've launched your asset and then it becomes like a ghost what
2: um, but 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 what if I am quicker? I mean uh how do you handle your risk? Because the other the other scenario I have in mind is that I say, Okay, I mean, go out on the market, raise funds, uh if you come back with an offer that's interesting to me, I will evaluate it, but at the same time I use my network to Try to be quicker. So it's, it's risk reducing for me. I understand it. Uh, but it, uh, increases your risk and this is real world behavior. It happens. How do you manage that? Do you demand exclusivity in the fundraising process or do you just live with the risk?
1: Yeah. I mean, typically and also typically when, when we already get to. So for example, some of the out licensing agreements that we make have like almost like trigger clauses. So we out-license it, and we sign an agreement that says, "Cool, we have exclusivity over the asset, and it's out-licensed." But it only triggers once if the funding is raised up, up like up to a certain point. So it's almost like an op, like it's almost like an option. And uh, and but at that point, it's relatively clear to the university that this is going to succeed. But you don't know, maybe tomorrow, like we we hit by like God forbid, like another economic crisis, and the funding doesn't come together. Uh, then kind of that that out-licensing agreement can unwind again. Um, and I, I also have to say, like, uh, I think, Christian, you, your questions are fantastic, by the way, super, super in depth. Uh, we're also still in the process of kind of figuring it out as we go, um, which is really necessary. And, and depending on which university you work with, depending on which jurisdiction, um, if it's Copenhagen or if it's if it's um, a university in, in, in Southern California, it's very different. Zabarani, and, uh, but it's, it's also something that we're trying super hard to get into a more streamlined process. Um, yeah. No, it, it's very interesting, and
2: congratulations that you take up the challenge. I um, <laughs> think there is a lot of possibilities to get organized around that. Um, there is one problem: so with the molecule, the technology is one uh, mm-hmm. issue to be solved. This is the job of the researcher. So they have to come up. It, it's nothing that you will do, I think. Um, the second problem, and this is your sweet spot, is finding the funding of uh, for the for the molecule. But then we have the mm-hmm. third problem: uh, the researchers at the university, by nature, are scientists who most often like uh, doing basic research. But the early stage development is uh, the part that's. Uh, very much focused it's uh development you have to have a clear goal you have to move forward and you need a team yeah. uh who brings the team to the table is that something that uh you want to do or is that something that you hope somebody else is doing because very often when i talk with vcs and business angels uh they are the ones who structure a team so this is the asset that they bring on top of that uh, to the table. Yeah. Is that also something that you have in mind for Molecule or do you want to restrict yourself only to the fundraising part?
1: No, it's definitely have something that we have in mind. So what we don't... So first, when we look for assets, we try we we try to only go with active assets. So we wouldn't work with a... We, we wouldn't want to like license a piece of IP from a university that has been sitting there for three years and the PI that worked on it has already done... 10 other projects. Um, it's, that's, that's not really interesting. So we try to find active, very active projects. And then the second thing that you said I think is extremely important. I think it becomes, it's not as important yet in that pre-seed stage where you're kind of like, we need, we need money for the killer experiment. Once we have the killer experiment, we'll figure out the rest. That's really where a big bottleneck is, I think. Um, but then you're absolutely right. The next step is like executive management, project management, and then eventually business, business development to like do something with the asset often like then broker an M&A deal. Um, that's also part that we still have to actively figure out how it's going to work well in this, like, in this virtual framework. Right now, we're doing a lot of it and or we are bringing in advisors uh, from our network to kind of help with that. Um, then you also have this natural development that it comes through the angels that, um, like as you mentioned, um, but it's not something where we have a tried and tested, a tried and tested method yet.
0: I was wondering, actually, how you uh, plan to scale this business, because it seems like at the moment, there's a lot of consultancy work uh, involved in it. And it's still um, I wonder how many projects at the time you can really take on.
1: Yeah, uh, also. Yeah, also a great point. Um, So I think on the one side is by creating scalable frameworks uh, where people enter information. Um, Like, as I mentioned earlier, I think I think that in itself is is a big step. Uh, by collecting the right amount of data from researchers and putting them into these frameworks. And so there, you're already scaling, massively scaling the consultancy part. I don't need to explain to you why you should enter your budget in a way like this or this. It's just, that's where the data field is and that's where you can enter it. Um, and then I think the other part is by staying relatively focused on this preclinical stage uh, and not going into like stage two clinical trials, where the managerial obviously the managerial work is, is like is by magnitudes larger. Um, I think that also helps. Um, but it's yeah, it's I, it's not something that we have entirely figured out yet. Um, and our hope, I mean, our hope is that like once we get to one, two, three, four, five projects that are launched, and then to ten projects that are launched that a lot of these steps start becoming much more scalable. And the other hope is that um, once we, uh, and we've, we see this already with some uh, some projects specifically in the longevity space, we're also interesting in the psychedelic space, where there you have very strong investor communities and strong, like a very strong ties to researchers. And it's a much more fluid exchange of information and building together than you would typically find at, say, in oncology research. Um, and so the last part is of of scale. How, how do we scale this as a team? Is um, is building in community mechanisms um, that yeah that that can help bring these things along along more quickly.
0: How do actually government agencies or uh, government funding agencies think about? It? Because if I think, for example, in the UK, the largest one is the Wellcome Trust. And they have a very strong um, scheme of vetting uh, potential drug development projects. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you actually had any dialogue with uh, such uh, bodies and how do we react to that? If you say like, oh, there could be some tokens involved in this and uh, might display the the value of the asset. uh, Are they open in general to such models or are they still like holding up on it?
1: Um, we had, we had quite a few conversations initially, it, like, I mean, this is already like a year over, like over a year ago. Um, and then realized, I think for them, this will become quite interesting once it's scale because, um, organizations like the Wellcome trust want to deploy a capital. I mean, they have a, they have an obligation to deploy their capital, but again, it's a, it's a, it's a funnel problem. It's like, are they, I mean, do they make a grant program? And then hundreds of researchers write them. Do they pick the researchers? And through a system like us what we could do kind of this concept that I described earlier, we could say, Hey, let's pick, let's pick 10 projects on molecule that are fundable. They have to meet these five criteria. These five criteria are things that we just automatically can collect the data on. Like, do you meet the criteria? Yes or no? Uh, done. And then we can say, cool. Welcome trust. We have five projects here that are investable. And welcome trust says, cool. We've gone through the data. They all match the criteria. We trust the people that looked at them. And, um, we're going to bulk deploy capital automatically through your system into these five projects. And you could obviously scale that up to 20 projects. And then you could say the Wellcome Trust wants to invest into uh, 10 projects in the oncology space, or they want to invest into um, uh, fighting, uh, let's say, um, tropical diseases, uh, financing five malaria projects. So you can make the whole thing, then you can, you can scale it up. And I think that's when it becomes quite interesting for, um, uh, for these types of organizations.
2: I mean, in, during my coaching uh, education, there was a very interesting question. It's the wonder question. So it's uh, I think there are many problems on the market that you try to solve. Um, but let's just assume what um, a wonder happens. And overnight, all problems are solved and Molecule is up and running and has millions of investors and researchers on the platform. Um, I think the, the the value that you could bring, and this is... An, the question or the, the, the statement that popped up in my mind is uh, the transferability I do see could really go down because every researcher, every service provider could go on your platform. It would not be dependent on, on, on large scale investments. So, for example, Charles River Laboratories or uh, ILCP in Prague or uh, any university who has an experiment that would create uh, data that... Mm-hmm. Uh, adds value to the molecule, could secure the rights by purchasing these tokens, uh, conduct at own risk uh, the research, uh, but they don't need to invest billions or millions. They probably need to invest a few thousand uh, euros or a few hundred thousand euros. To get sufficient right to have a repayment, and then they can put it on the market once they have produced the data and sell it to the next part in the chain. Is this uh, the right understanding of your vision, or uh, did I miss something in the conversation?
1: Um, no, absolutely. So I mean, what I like, what I yeah, what I really like about your thinking here is that you're starting to like play around what type of behavior or incentives or business models this could actually enable. Um, and to kind of to play your idea a bit further, so one part of the systems that we that we've begun designing um, and it partially came through a collaboration that we have with a CRO, uh a robotics CRO in Oxford. Um, it's a company called Arcturus. And what they have is they essentially do completely automated preclinical um, experiments in a robotics lab and they upload it straight to the cloud, um, which is super cool if you think about it. And then and so we, we started thinking about, cool, how can CROs interoperate with the system? And so. Let's say you, you're a researcher. You've just raised 300K in funding through our system. It's really early. And now you say, you know what? Um, we need to have toxicology reports done. We need mouse studies. Uh, all this stuff is going to cost money. But what if we offer equity to people? So you could say, cool, um, I'm going to give 2% of the tokens to whoever does toxicology reports for me. And I don't have them yet. I'm still working on something else. And we don't even have the money for the tox reports or the mouse studies. But maybe someone will come along and do it. And then. Uh, let's say a CRO in India says, we've been looking at this at this problem case and actually this compound is really interesting to us. We will do this for those 2% plus maybe 10% in cash. And you could have an Australian can also say, cool, we also want to do this. Um, and, and so now what you're starting to do is you're starting to exchange tokens for work. So rather than saying just taking money, you can also say, give me data and I'll give you a part of the asset because I'm only raising money to produce the data. So if you can give me the data straight away and do it on a more risky basis, um, that's that's quite interesting. I th- think for CROs, that business, that value proposition is quite difficult because they need to spend a lot. Uh, it's quite expensive to do experiments. But for example, um, there are CROs that are changing their their risk model around this uh, and actually wanting to benefit from the upside um, uh, that might come from from the research that they're doing. Uh, and the interesting thing again here about tokens is that this is exactly the same like it's the same underlying mechanism um yeah, but it took i took an an
2: understanding uh, slowly um so when then the end point of the process is also solved that the pharma company or a larger v c can take it off the platform without the need to having to negotiate with hundreds or potentially thousands of uh of people um then it would be very valuable because this is also one problems that i experienced that is uh from the from the next step of the out licensing part from the company to the pharma industry or from the company to avc uh too many shareholders in a company are a blocking problem yeah. so when you hand out now percentages of tokens can you make sure that you can Uh, transfer all ownership rights uh, without uh, the owners of the token intervening? How do you handle this problem?
1: Yeah. um, In the initial designs that we have, we we, we mirror a lot of normal corporate governance functions to answer these questions. So again, uh, I think with these kind of corporate governance things, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. Um, But yeah, I mean you could auto code this in. You could say, cool, a certain amount of token holders have to vote and then and then it becomes binding for the rest of them. Um I think that's that's a relatively simple way to go about it.
2: So basically it would be a simple vote, uh you implemented uh 50% when fifty-one percent say yes, the asset goes to the to the buyer at the at the offered price without any further negotiation. So it's a clear structure it's two weeks negotiation uh, two weeks of voting and either you take it or you leave it out so it's basically simple for example cool Cool. sounds great sounds like a great idea uh i think it (laughs) would take some time to convince the world (laughs)
1: 100 100 i mean i think yeah i think the vision that we're trying to go for is extremely ambitious um i think in some parts it's outright like it's a bit crazy but i think uh i think you need to have that kind of mentality if you really want to make a um, big, big changes to the system. Um, yeah.
2: I mean, we have, we have a little bit of an audience with the podcast. So what are the problems that you are currently working on and what kind of support are you looking for at the moment?
1: Um, yeah. So the problems that we're currently working on are, I think we, we're seeing very solid, let's say product market fit with our offering on the supply side, um, especially with academia and with drug discovery centers. And, um, and we could we could start help having more help in how we we've worked we're working with a few biotechs but really scaling up working with larger biotechs and really just maybe kind of jamming with them on like what does work for you what does it mean for you would you be open to kind of like spinning out one of your assets where do you see the risks or where where might be the risk for your shareholders there's even questions like what does it do to your accounting like if you held now tokens in an asset that you spun out mm-hmm. and there's things like that and. But then I think the biggest challenges for us are on the demand side. Um, and the demand side is, is can be tricky because there's very different investor communities. Um, and different assets have different investor communities. Um, so for example, oncology assets for breast cancer, you would find a very different investor base than say um, a, a novel psychedelic compound to treat mental to treat a mental health um, issue. Um, so narrowing down on those investor communities and then making sure that our value proposition really matches what they're looking for. Initially, we spoke to many biotech VCs and we read as, Hey, we're like way too early in the funnel to be talking to people that want to allocate five to 10 million. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and kind of getting that part of the equation, right. And then also scaling up onboarding and and marketing around that. the other thing where, where we continue to be Yeah, I mean where your all of your listeners might be super helpful is um, we're always looking for support uh, where we're hiring at the moment uh, for a variety of roles um, and yeah could really use more support from from the core biotech ecosystem um, yeah Th- those are some of the things at the top at the top of my mind Oh, and then obviously any feedback uh, so um Uh, Christian, I'll be happy to send you kind of a link to kind of our current system. And uh, if any of your listeners want to sign up and give us feedback, like we'd be super stoked. Um, If they understand it, what is happening here, does this make sense? Um, uh, Yeah. This
2: would be a great thing to get the link to to, uh, have access to your platform. Um, (laughs) We can add it to the podcast episode and send it also through the newsletter. And if anybody's interested, they can look at it. Um, Astrid, do you do you have further questions?
0: No, I think it's been a really interesting conversation, and I'll be looking forward to seeing you know how molecule will evolve over the next few years and how it will, will all plan out. I think it's a very interesting concept, um, room for more improvement here and there, but that's the thing with you know doing cutting edge technology and uh, working on new business models. But it's been really fascinating. so. Thanks very much for being on the show, Paul.
1: Thank you so much, Astrid. It's been yeah, it's been a pleasure.
2: No, I also think it's a very interesting idea, and uh, there is a problem actually in this phase that you're aiming at, and I think it's an unsolved problem. So, if your system works, and if you have uh, the guts, the nerves, and the willpower to push through these adversities that uh, probably your team will face, yeah. I believe there you can bring a lot of value to that part of the industry, and. Uh, I would be happy if you succeed. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks, you too.
0: Thanks. Bye-bye.
2: Thanks for listening. Please,
1: please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.